All glory be to You, the living God, O Father in Heaven, with Your Son and the Holy Spirit. We give You praise and thanks. We put our hope and trust in You. Especially today, Lord, we ask that that with unveiled faces, we would behold and reflect to one another the glorious light of Christ Jesus, even as Christ was transfigured on the mountain and You declared Him to be Your beloved Son, so may His light shine into our hearts and through us. May He shine into the world that Christ may be glorified by our praises because He is indeed glorious. You have shared Your glory with Him and that now that glory shines upon us. May You speak to us from heaven and may we be filled with Your love. You have commanded us to hear Your Son, so may we hear Him speaking today. Indeed, Lord, we pin our hopes of salvation on Christ alone who has suffered and died for us, who has taken the curse upon Himself, who has conquered for us. He has fought the good fight to bring us life and victory. Today we are gathered, Lord, to shout Your praises, to sing of Your perfections, to lift You up in the greatness of Your name, that Your name may be known all across the world, that all may know Your excellencies and all Your marvelous works. Hear us, Lord. Hear our praises. Hear our petitions. And help us for the sake of Christ Jesus, in whose strong name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He came to show His glory, which is Your glory that You shared with Him from the beginning of the world. We thank You that He came to keep the fast so that we can be, uh, have access to the feast that You've prepared for Your saints, the eternal feast in Your kingdom. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The entire history of the Bible can be told as a story of fasting kept and fasting broken. The Bible begins with the story of a broken fast. God created Adam from the dust of the ground and He put him in a world that was to be food for him. Everything around him was for his delight. Everything around him was for his nourishment. He was placed in a world as a hungry creature and he was given a global feast. There was one restriction. He had to keep a fast with regard to one type of food. He was given all the plants of the field, all the plants of the garden, including the tree of life, but was prohibited from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was supposed to keep that one restriction, that one dietary regulation. But of course, he didn't. And because Adam broke the fast, that was imposed on him at the beginning, he was cast out of Eden and God imposed an even stricter fast on all of humanity. Adam could eat from the tree of life before he fell. He didn't, but he could have. He could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After he sinned, humanity was expelled from the Garden of Eden and they couldn't even get back to the tree of life. And from Adam until Christ, everyone is excluded from enjoyment of that meal. Everyone is under that fast. Neither the tree of life nor the tree of knowledge of good and evil is available to humanity until Jesus comes as the last Adam. And Jesus comes and doesn't seize life. He doesn't seize the food that was given to Him as Adam did. 
Jesus comes and waits for the gift of food to be given to Him. Jesus, the Son of God, who is with the Father in glory from all eternity, Jesus, who is the last Adam, comes and He does not seize the fruit, but waits patiently, faithfully, for His Father to give it. Jesus keeps the fast. Jesus, the Son of God, enters into the fast that was imposed on the human race. He takes that fast as His own, submits to it, keeps it, and gives us access to an eternal feast. Of course, Jesus did fast quite literally. I'm talking more metaphorically about Jesus not seizing the kingdom but waiting for His Father to give it to Him. But He did fast quite literally in the wilderness for 40 days. And when he was hungry, Satan tempted him. Satan came back tempting the last Adam as he had tempted the first and tempted him to seize food. Tell these stones to become bread. You're hungry. Make these stones bread. Bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus did not uh, listen to Satan. He did not. He was seduced by that temptation. He kept the fast. And so he, uh, he allows us to enter into the eternal feast of His kingdom. We're celebrating today the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, but this is also the last Sunday of Epiphany and the first Sunday before Lent. And many churches throughout history have celebrated and observed Lent as a 40-day fast period. You can read stories about superhuman fasting done by desert fathers who refused to eat or drink for seemingly months on end with no effect on their metabolism. Uh, Stories about that from the early church and the great heroic fasting of the Desert Fathers. That has not been the kind of fast that the church has usually expected of its members. In churches that observe a Lenten fast, there's a partial fast from certain kinds of food. There's a partial fast on certain days from certain meals. In some churches, uh, some churches observe Lent with a kind of symbolic fast. You take something that you really like, NFL football, and you give it up for Lent. Well, the season will be over, so it won't matter. You get to take something you really like and you give it up for Lent as a symbolic fast. Jesus kept the fast and He expects His disciples to fast in some of these ways also. The Bible doesn't prescribe how we should fast, but Jesus does expect His disciples to fast. He doesn't command it in the Sermon on the Mount in our uh, Gospel reading today. He just expects it. When you fast... Do it this way, just like when you give alms, do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. When you fast, do it this way. He expects us to fast, not because there's something wrong with the things that we give up, not because the things of this world are bad or material things are to be avoided or we should try to detach ourselves from material things, which would be impossible in any case. God made us material beings. He made us dependent on food, and that's good. It's good that we're dependent. It's good that we have bodies. It's good that we have to take the world in from outside to feed us. We don't fast to beat our bodies into submission so we can live some kind of exclusively spiritual life. We don't fast because somehow God is going to uh, keep tabs of our merit points up in heaven. The more we fast, the more He's going to delight in us. We don't fast because Jesus expects us to be gloomy and sad all the time. Quite the contrary, as we'll see. In the Bible, fasting is an expression and a practice of patience. Adam was placed under a fast. It wasn't a permanent fast. 
it wasn't total fast. He had other things he could eat. And someday he was going to be allowed to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was put under a partial, temporary fast as a training in patience. As a training to hope in God. To put his trust in God. Feasting, Fasting, rather, is an act of hope. When we fast, we fast in the light of some good thing that's ahead. Lent is a fast period because the good thing of Easter is coming. The feast of Easter is coming. And in anticipation of that great feast of Easter, we put ourselves under this discipline of patience. Fasting is an expression of and an exercise of hope. Fasting is also an embodied expression of our dependence on God. God placed Israel on a fast in the wilderness. He gave them manna to eat, he says, to humble them, to show them that they didn't live by bread alone. They lived by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They lived by the bread that God provided day by day. They didn't live by bread. And even when you have plenty of bread, you don't live by that bread. Nothing you eat is alive. Everything you eat has been killed. And then you take that dead stuff and you put it into your body and God makes it live. It's the Word of God that keeps you alive. And fasting is an expression of our dependence and so an expression of our trust and faith in the God who keeps us alive. Fasting is an expression and a discipline of hope. Fasting is an expression and discipline of humility, dependence, and therefore of faith. In the Bible, fasting is often done in conjunction with sorrow and mourning over sin, sorrow and mourning over some kind of disaster. And it's an expressed bodily, a bodily way of praying to God, praying for God's mercy, a way of humbling ourselves, not only in words, but physically humbling ourselves, so that God will respond in mercy and deliver us from the disaster and forgive our sins. Fasting is an expression of faith. Fasting is an expression of love. Faith, hope, and love. This is what Isaiah is getting at when he talks about the fasting of Israel that the Lord rejects. Is this the fast I chose for you? Is this what it means to fast? That you give up food, but then you beat up your servants? You fast with closed fists? No. This is the fast the Lord has chosen. To loosen every bond. To open your hands generously. You fast, you restrain yourself so that you have something to give to others. This is Yahweh's fast. Not just because this is the fast that Yahweh expects of His people, but it's the fast of Yahweh because it's the fast that Yahweh Himself performs. Isaiah 58 says, you give your soul to the souls of others. That's the fast that God wants. Not just to give stuff away, not just to write a check from a distance, but to give yourself into the lives of others because that's what Yahweh has done. Yahweh has loosened bonds. Yahweh has clothed the naked. Yahweh has fed the hungry. Yahweh has given His soul, His spirit, into our spirits to enliven us. That's the fast that God has chosen. That's the fast that we're called to. Fasting is an act of love. God gave us appetites. God gave us desires. And fasting is an expression of subordinating and directing these desires and appetites for the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. It's an exercise of faith, hope, and love. It's a discipline of faith, hope, and love. Now, fasting seems so important, as I've suggested, so important in the history of humanity, so important as a 
way of life as an expression of a certain uh, way of life, faith, hope, and love. It's rather surprising to find that in the law there is only one fast day that's imposed on Israel. We read about it earlier this morning. Leviticus 23 talks about the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the Israelites were to afflict their souls and fast while the high priest slaughtered animals, took the blood into the uh, most holy place, sent out the scapegoat all that day. The Israelites were supposed to be fasting. It's the only prescribed fast day in the entire liturgical calendar of Israel in the Mosaic period. It's the only fast day in contrast to many feast days. There aren't any 40-day fast days in the Torah, but there are seven-day feast days, a couple of feast weeks, a couple of them. If you total up the Sabbaths and all the feast days, you probably have close to 75 or 80 feast days during the course of the year. One fast day. God can't think fasting is very important. He wants feasting to be the predominant uh, expression or the predominant tone of his people rather than fasting. He sends them into a land overflowing with milk and honey and he expects his people to delight in that land, not to refrain from it. Oh, thanks for the land, Lord, but we don't want any, we don't want to get fat on the milk and honey, so we're going to refrain. No, he puts them in a land and he tells them, enjoy it with one fast day. But I think to conclude that God doesn't care about fasting is rather premature. Because as we look at the Old Testament, we actually see that fasting becomes more prominent as the history of Israel goes on. There are more fasts the longer Israel goes, uh, as long, the longer Israel's history goes on. There aren't any called fasts, as far as I can tell, during the Mosaic period. But toward the end of the time of the Judges, toward the end of the Book of Judges at least, we have a fast imposed during the battle between Benjamin and the rest of the tribes. When the rest of the tribes try to defeat Benjamin because they've permitted this scandal to happen with the Levite and his concubine. And they fast and pray and mourn because they've been defeated by the Benjamites. And the Lord answers and gives them the victory the next day. Naboth is falsely accused at a fast that's called. Joel responds, tells the people to respond to a locust invasion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Blow a temple, in, a, blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. As Ezra begins to return to the land after exile, he prays and fasts before he starts out, hoping and trusting the Lord will be with him. When Haman plots against the Jews and wants to wipe all of the Jews out, Esther and Esther is going to go into Ahasuerus and plead for the lives of the Jews. She asks for the Jews throughout throughout the provinces of Ahasuerus to fast and pray for three days before she goes in to see the king. When Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches and, uh, and, and tells them that their city is about to be destroyed, the whole city goes into a fast. The whole city wears sackcloth. And they go into a fast and as an expression of their sorry for their sins and as an expression of trust and hope in the gods who shows mercy. Not only do we have periodic fast days called throughout the Old Testament, but we also have set fast days, at least during certain periods of Old Testament history. According to Zechariah 8.19, there are fasts in the fourth, the fifth, and the seventh month. These are marking different, different stages of the invasion of Judah and the conquest of Judah and the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the land by the Babylonians. And during the exile, at least, even if it wasn't continued after, during the exile for 70 years, 
Israel kept those fast days as a regular thing. Every fifth month of every year, every fourth month, every fifth month, and every seventh month of every year, they would have some kind of fast for some period of that month as they're pleading with God to keep His promise to send them back from exile back into the, into the land. There are set fast days, not just periodic fast days that are a response to particular needs. By the time we get to the New Testament, fasting has become an important part of Jewish piety. This is why Jesus addresses it. Jesus didn't invent the the triad of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. That's a Jewish triad of works of piety, works of righteousness. Jesus expects his disciples to do those things differently, but he's telling them to do things that the Jews are already doing. Jesus tells uh, those who object to the fact that his disciples don't fast, that they will eventually fast. And we see that in the book of Acts. Fasting before somebody is ordained to go out on mission. Fasting in conjunction with prayer. Fasting as a part of ministering the Lord. There's only one fast day in the Torah. But as Israel's history goes on, fasting becomes more prominent. There are more fast days. Is that because Israel is declining? Is that because Israel has become corrupted and so they have to mourn for their sins more than they used to? I don't think so. Israel's history is a history of maturation. It's a maturation in patience and hope. It's a maturation in humility. It's a maturation in faith and love. And the increase of fasting is a sign of Israel's maturation in those virtues. It's part of God's pedagogy for Israel. They're growing up. And so they recognize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They recognize that they are utterly dependent on God. They recognize that their sins must be forgiven by God's by a merciful God if they're going to survive at all. They're supposed to be learning that they have the goods of this world in order to share with others. Fasting increases throughout the Old Testament. Because Israel is being, is, is maturing. Israel is supposed to be growing up, growing into these virtues. Of course, fasting can be hypocritical, and that's what Jesus is addressing in the gospel lesson for today. But not in the way that we tend to think. This is right at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount deals with a lot of different topics, but right at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the structural center of the whole sermon, Jesus deals with these three acts of righteousness. That, uh, he talks about almsgiving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And in each case, he contrasts what his disciples are supposed to do with what hypocrites do. Don't be like the hypocrites giving alms, praying, and fasting this way. Rather, give alms, pray, and fast. Continue to do those things, but do them this way. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about how you do it. He doesn't say it's not important whether you fast externally or not as long as you're fasting internally. It doesn't doesn't matter whether you actually give alms as long as you wish you would give alms. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't talk about uh, an internalization of these practices of righteousness. He tells them, he tells his disciples to do it differently, to adopt different sorts of practices in prayer, in almsgiving, and in fasting. And in each case, he's contrasting to the hypocrites. The hypocrites, when they give alms, have somebody beside them with a trumpet announcing that they're giving alms so that everyone knows just how generous they are. 
when the hypocrites pray, they go out in public in front of everybody so that everybody can see how long and how pious their prayers are. When they fast, they put on a gloomy face and they make sure that everyone knows they're fasting. He says, don't do that. Jesus and the hypocrites both see almsgiving, prayer, and fasting as a form of communication. The only question is, to whom, with whom, are you communicating? Are you giving alms to communicate something to the people around you? Are you praying in order to communicate a message to those who are watching you pray? Are you fasting so that you gain a reputation among men as a pious Jew? The hypocrites are doing their works before men so that they will be seen by those men and will be honored by them. They're communicative acts, but they're acts that are communicated to the other human beings that, are, that surround them and that are watching them. They have the reward, Jesus says. If you want to give alms, you want to pray, and you want to fast for rewards from human beings, you can get it. You can gain a, gain a reputation as a pious person by doing these things. But that's not how His disciples, how Jesus' disciples should give alms or pray or fast. Rather, we should think that we're communicating not with the human beings around us, but with God, the God who sees in secret. So Jesus says, when you pray, go into a closet, hide your prayers. Don't communicate your praying, your prayer life to those around you. Go into a closet. Pray in secret, and the God who sees in secret will hear you. When you give alms, don't blow a trumpet. Don't put your, uh, your giving history on the, on, on the international, uh, on the World Wide Web so everyone knows how generous you are. Do it in secret, and the God who sees in secret will know that you've given alms. And not just that. They have their reward. The hypocrites have their reward. God uh, sees and also rewards. If you give alms in secret, God rewards. If you pray in secret, God rewards. If you fast in secret, God rewards. What kind of secrecy does Jesus expect of His disciples with regard to fasting? It's a rather odd set of instructions. Don't be like the hypocrites who put on a gloomy face, who present themselves to other men as sad and uh, uh, self-disciplined by their fasting. Rather, anoint your head. Wash your face so nobody can see that you're fasting. Part of this, again, is the contrast between doing things before men and doing things before the Father. But those are odd instructions with regard to fasting. Usually in the Bible, those are the things you do before a feast. When Ruth is going to go visit Boaz, on the threshing floor during the feast. She washes herself. She puts on clothes, festival clothes. She anoints her head, and then she goes and offers herself as Boaz's wife. When Israel is coming back from exile and is preparing herself to enter into the feast of return, she's washed, she's anointed, she's robed, and then she goes before her husband. This is what people do before they, before they feast, not when they fast. David fasts and prays for the first child of Bathsheba. He fasts and prays until he realizes this child is dead. After he's, after he's fasted, he washes his face, anoints himself, takes food, puts on new clothes. Those things mark the end of fasting, not the fast that they're keeping. But Jesus wants us, Jesus tells us to fast in a way that makes it appear that we're feasting. That's partly, again, hiding our fasting from men, fasting before our Father in Heaven. 
but also says something about the nature of the new covenant and the culmination of this progress in maturation, this progress in maturity that we see throughout uh, throughout Israel's history. When you're really young, there's a stark contrast, stark contrast between being hungry and eating. There's a stark contrast between losing and winning. There's a stark contrast between being in pain and being relieved of pain. Between all the bad things that happen and the good things that happen. As we grow up, if we grow up, we realize that things are much more complicated than that. That there is success in the midst of our failures. That there's glory in the midst of our sufferings. That there's fullness in the midst of our lack. Of course, the great expression of that mature truth is the cross of Jesus Christ, which is both His glory and His shame. He's lifted up on a cross, supposed to be the ashamed, shamed before all men, but in fact, it is the glory, it's His glorification, it's His elevation. And His victory is there in His apparent defeat. Jesus is telling us to fast in a way that conforms to the Gospel. Fast in a way that expresses this fullness in the midst of lack. This feasting in the midst of our fasting. We're celebrating Transfiguration Sunday today. Transfiguration Sunday is a Sunday, a, a celebration of light. A celebration of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we don't forget Transfiguration Sunday as we move into Lent and contemplate the cross of Jesus and His sufferings and perhaps observe Lent through some kind of fasting. We don't forget transfiguration. We don't forget the incarnation and the glory of God displayed in the incarnation. We don't forget what's coming, which is Easter. Because in the New Covenant, fasting has been invaded by feasting. And so as we keep our fast, we keep it in a way that expresses our confidence that the feast has already come. That the kingdom has come and that we are also already now participating in that feast. So as you enter land, wash your face, put on your oil on your head, let the spirit of joy fill your heart. The feast that is ahead of us has already come, and it's invaded our fasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the light that he has shown into the world. We thank you that his light is our guide. His light is our life. And we thank you that even in the midst of sorrow, danger, lack, even in the midst of our fasting, we can know that light and see that light. That our fasting can become a form of fullness and feasting in your presence. And we pray as we enter the season of Lent, as we contemplate the glory of Jesus in the cross, that you would teach us that great truth, that you would conform us to the one mature man, Jesus Christ, who went to his victory in apparent defeat. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.